Church, if you have your copy of God's Word, would you turn to the 16th chapter of the Gospel of John? John chapter 16. We will be in John 16 for the next five weeks. And so as we have talked about this month and preparing to be faithful hearers, I pray that you join me in, in reading this chapter uh, once a day and just dwelling on the truths that are in it. Uh, I guarantee you it'll be for your benefit. I consider it a tremendous honor uh, as I uh, recognize that God has called me to preach his glorious gospel. Uh, I consider it a tremendous honor, especially in light of what we've been studying here on Wednesday nights uh, through understanding um, how we know that the Bible is true. And I think even through that study in the last couple of weeks, it is given me a new type of reverence for the Word of God that when I stand up here and, and preach these things to you, I'm not giving you myths or fables, but I'm giving you words that men who were moved by the Spirit wrote and the Spirit himself wrote for God's glory. What a humbling thing it is to consider that we have God, the Creator, the universe's Word before us to study. Uh, it is a tremendous gift. I also want to encourage you before we read to be back tonight uh, we started last week uh, the book of Nehemiah, really one of my favorite Old Testament books. We'll continue that tonight in looking at what it means to be a caring Christian. So I pray uh, that you would make the decision now to come tonight uh, and, uh, and be fed some more. John chapter 16, we're going to consider the first 11 verses of this chapter this morning. Uh, and I pray that you would stand now for the honor of reading God's word as we understand this is his word spoken to us. We have reverence for it. We'll read the first 11 verses. This is Jesus again speaking to his disciples. He's been speaking to them for several chapters now and he's still speaking to them. And here's what he says in verses 1 through 11. These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who uh, kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. But these things I've spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you of them. These things I did not say to you at the beginning because I was with you. Verse 5. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because of the ruler of this world has been judged. First Baptist Church of Grey Gables, the grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's thank him for that word right now. Lord, we thank you for the tremendous word you've given us as we understand, Lord, uh, that you came down and spoke this word to us in human language. That what we have here are the very words of God. Lord, that Jesus saw it that way. That you see it that way. We ought to see it that way. Father, we know that there is power in your word. Lord, there's power to change lives. There is power to grow us. There is power to convict. Lord, we pray those things over our hearts this morning, that this wouldn't be just a typical Sunday. 
This wouldn't be just a normal Sunday. This would be a Sunday that God uses to change our lives continually, ever before him. Lord, we thank you for the mercy that you've shown us and the sacrificing of your son. And it's in that work and in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, actually, in, in some ways, it would have made sense uh, for verses 1 through 4 to really be part of chapter 15. Uh, it, it certainly does tie in with what we looked at two weeks ago on the subject of persecution. We've, we've already considered to uh, uh, some degree the subject of persecution, and, and because of that, uh, I'm not really going to spend a whole lot of time on verses 2 through 4 uh, this morning. Uh, I'm really going to skim that subject and give the bulk of our attention, I believe, to verses 5 through 11. But as we come to chapter 16, we find sort of a different shift in the overall emphasis when it's compared to chapter 15. And in chapter 15, when Jesus is in the upper room, he's speaking to his disciples. There's quite a bit of attention given to the responsibilities that they were going to have once he departed. However, here in chapter 16, the emphasis is placed upon what God is going to do in their lives once Jesus departed. Not only that, but throughout this chapter, we'll also notice a shift in the tense. Uh, throughout this chapter, there's an emphasis that's placed on prediction, on what's going to happen to the disciples in the future and what God was going to do to help them through those things as they faced each circumstance. The emphasis on prediction is quite easy to see. If you just take the time, as I said, to read through this chapter with me uh, in the next couple, uh, in the next month or so, you are going to begin to see how easy it is uh, to notice the future tense being used. So with that as just a bit of a background to this chapter, I want to give our attention to what Jesus had to tell his disciples as it concerns his future. Jesus says in verse 1 this, he said, These things I've spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. So, so right off the bat, we, we're going to see the purpose of these predictions that Jesus is going to bring. We're going to sing the, see the purpose of these predictions, and that is preservation and, and perseverance. Uh, preservation and perseverance. Jesus says that he shared all those previous things about persecution with his disciples so they would not stumble when they faced it. He's preparing them for it. And typically, when we think of the word stumble, as it's used within the scripture, it's a reference to sinning, right? As uh, one author, James Adams, uh, J. Adams, puts it, uh, one falls into sin when he stumbles. This is what happens to all of us. Jesus is basically telling them that his purpose on speaking of these things is, uh, to them ahead of time is so they wouldn't sin when persecution arose in the future. The sin that he had in view is the sin of apostasy. The sin of, of turning away from the name of Jesus, from following Jesus because of persecution. That's what he wants to prepare him for. You recall how in the parable of the sower, this is one of the realities in view. We looked at that earlier this month, especially in regard to whether or not the word of God will produce fruit or yield a crop. Whether that seed will fall into hard ground, a, a ground that would not receive the word and essentially get choked out and die. And just like in that parable, it is the word of God that is planted in the heart of Christ's disciples here in our text. 
That's how he's going to keep them from stumbling, through his word. See, listen, church, it is the words of the Savior that the the disciples are going to listen to, to grab hold of, and trust. And if they would keep in mind these words of Jesus, Jesus is saying that they won't stumble. That's why the psalmist could say, as we read just a few moments ago, your word I've treasured in my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. Friends, God's word, the Bible, has a sanctifying, strengthening, and persevering effect in the lives of his disciples. It preserves us. It keeps us. God's word is so powerful. And the the reason it's so powerful is because It's God's word. The same Holy Spirit that inspired the words of Scripture is the same one who purposed that those words be powerful, that they be living and active in order to equip us for all the things we face in this life. So there's power to be found in God's word. God uses his scriptures to strengthen and preserve us. To help us stand in the midst of the trials we face in this life. You know, if you ever get the opportunity to counsel somebody who is in need of of, of great help. If you ever get that opportunity, if you want to see God do something wonderful in that person's life. Then friends, you better offer them counsel according to the word of God. That's the only avenue for change we really have here. This is our only hope of seeing success in giving advice or counsel to others. Our only hope in seeing people transformed or equipped to deal with whatever they're facing in life is for them to hear what we just sang about, the eternal words of Christ. Same truth is true for preachers. Guys, any preacher who stands before a congregation and doesn't preach from God's word and in accordance with God's word can never, ever hope to see the hearers' lives changed. Ever. The power comes by God's spirit mightily through his word. But if you're not preaching the word, then there's no hope that you are going to see some effect of a transformed life. So Jesus sought to strengthen his disciples by telling them what they should expect in the future. And I realize when we know the future of the disciples as we read the book of Acts and we study church history, I realize it can be a little difficult to imagine how they might have been encouraged or strengthened by hearing that persecution was on their horizon. By hearing that they were going to give their very lives for the sake of this gospel. That's hardly the thing you want to hear your Savior saying to you if he's about to leave you, right? But it becomes easier when you see or when you think about how they might have responded had Jesus not told them of these things to come. If Jesus had not said these things to them beforehand, they they would have likely been prone to be discouraged in their faith and perhaps some might even have left him. If Jesus had not shared these things with them, it may have caused them to wonder whether Jesus really did have all things in control. Whether he really was exactly who he claimed to be, God in the flesh. After all, if if Jesus hadn't known the, the end, if Jesus hadn't known what was coming for the disciples, he simply would have been helpless victim to his enemies. 
wouldn't he? If that were the case, then he would hardly be anybody worth following, or at least someone you probably wouldn't feel comfortable following. But Jesus telling them these things beforehand, they would know that all things were known and ordained by Jesus. They would have known, friends, that Judas's betrayal did not surprise Christ. That Jesus' own crucifixion and resurrection was all part of his eternal plan. So, so if they could know that Jesus was in control of all things, whenever they would encounter the fiery trials of their faith, and they would, or when they would come under the hatred and persecution of the world, which they would, they would know simultaneously that those things were a part of God's eternal plan. Friends, there's great comfort in knowing that our Savior is sovereign. There is. Even though going through those times is extremely trying and can be very difficult, when we know with certainty that our Lord is the one who has brought such things to pass, it makes enduring them even easier. Why? Doesn't make really much sense, does it? Well, it's because we know that whatever he does for those who believe in him is for the believer's good and for his glory. And friends, knowing that can make all the difference in the world as we face troubles in life. This is a comfort Jesus would have his disciples to know way back then in our text and, and today as well. See, just like his disciples, as we looked at two weeks ago, we will face persecution from this world. We face a world that hates Jesus and his disciples. We shouldn't be surprised by these things. Jesus told them, and he's telling us, that we shouldn't lose heart in the face of those persecutions because it's all under control. It may not seem like it's under control. It may not feel like it's under control, but trusting in the word of God, we know that it is. None of these things are outside his power. None of these things are outside his sovereignty. If we truly believe that to live is Christ and that to die is gain and that nothing at all can separate us from the love of Christ, then friends, what in the world do we have to fear in this life? If we would just grasp those truths, we'd have such freedom. What can man do to us if we belong to Jesus? Let me tell you why I think this is important for us. I've noticed something in our culture and our day-to-day lives. We tend to always fail to connect our circumstances to our theology. We, we know the right answers a lot of the time. We, we know what we should be feeling or thinking in any given time. But because we are an emotional beings, and, and oftentimes, let's be honest, we're human beings who are run and controlled by their own emotions— We, in that moment, in that circumstance, in that fiery trial, we fail to connect any theology, any Bible, any of God's word at all to our circumstance. We've got no lens. We oftentimes just see red or we just see the trial and that's all we can really focus on. But I want you to think about the context here. Jesus has just spent four chapters investing in the disciples so that they would be prepared, investing his word into the apostles so that they would be prepared for what's to come in persecution. And you know what we find in the book of Acts when persecution arises? 
Not once do we find the apostle saying, this couldn't be God's plan for us. There's no way God would want me to have to go through this. No, God, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to be satisfied in the things of this world, even if it goes directly against his word. He, he can't mean that I walk through difficulty. No, the disciples don't do any of that. In fact, what do we see a couple weeks ago? They, can, they celebrated. They praised that they would be considered worthy to suffer for the sake of the gospel. Do you know why, friends? It's because when Jesus told them they were going to face trials and persecution, get this, and then they faced trials and persecution, they trusted in his word. They trusted him and they took him at his word. And we fail to do this. We fail to do this and it really jacks up our theology because we're so driven by this, this sort of American dream Christianity where ultimately what God wants to give us is a big house, nice car, and a white picket fence. Friends, to follow Jesus, to follow the way of the cross. That's <laughs> what it looks like. And so when we're walking through difficult times, I know many of us are, friends, it's why it's important that we memorize the word of God, that we know the word of God, that we trust the word of God so we can filter those circumstances through the promises of our Savior. Amen. And that is the greatest help you will ever find in the midst of your trial. Let's move on here to verses 5 and 7. John chapter 16, we'll move down to verse 5, we'll go to verse 7. It says, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. It's worth noting here that the disciples were filled with sorrow over the idea that Jesus was about to leave them. And that's understandable. I think most of us can appreciate why they would be sorrowful. Anytime we talk about a departure of a loved one or saying goodbye, it, it tends to fill our hearts with sorrow and rightly so. But if that's the case, how much more sorrowful would it be for the disciples as they thought about their master leaving, their savior leaving them? Well, Jesus, the compassionate and gracious savior that he is, has more to share with them by way of encouragement. And that's what we see in verse seven. Jesus is sensing their sorrow. He's sensing their emotions here and he addresses it and ministers to them. In the midst of their sorrow, in the midst of their turmoil, in the midst of their hurt, he tells them that it is actually for their advantage that he go away. Now, listen, it would be understandable if Jesus had even said to them, actually, it's for my advantage that I go away. Because after all, it, it would be to an advantage for Jesus to go back to his heavenly abode where he came from, right? But this is not what he says. He says it's to your advantage that he go away. This must have been really difficult for the disciples to, to wrap their minds around. I know it would have been for me. How could it possibly be to their advantage that Jesus leaves them? Well, he has an answer for them. It's to their advantage that he go away because it's the only way by his going that the Holy Spirit will come. 
And in thinking about this, we need to understand the things that would have to take place before he would be able to leave to go to the Father, right? Prior to leaving them, Jesus would have to endure the cross. The way of the Father was through the rugged cross. Jesus must die before his leaving could be to their advantage. See, after the death, burial, and resurrection of uh, an ascension of Jesus Christ, the Spirit then has a work to apply to us. The place upon us for our redemption, it is then that he can take the precious blood of the Savior and immerse it upon our hearts. But none of this can happen until Jesus goes to the cross. It would not have been to their advantage had Jesus not gone to the Father directly, or it had not been there to their advantage if Jesus had just gone to the Father directly at this moment. If he had said, peace, I'm out, bye, no. It would have been a terror for Jesus without accomplishing the work for which he was set out to do from eternity past. But there's also another advantage for his going away. This one might be a little easier for us to appreciate if we keep in mind the fact that Jesus is both God and man. Jesus is the God-man. See, as a man, Jesus could only be physically in one place at a time. Right now, where is Jesus? Addie asks me this question every day, my three-year-old. Where is Jesus? I try to explain to her. Jesus, physically speaking, is at the right hand of God the Father. He cannot, as a man, be both physically present with God the Father and here physically present with us. But, listen, by going to heaven and sending forth the Holy Spirit, Jesus is able to be with his people all of the time. The Holy Spirit isn't limited to a particular location. He is not a body like a man, so he is at work all times, everywhere. Now, it's definitely the case that it was and is to our advantage that Jesus left the earth and sent the Holy Spirit to us. I want to share with you some commentary from a pastor named Gordon Ketty on this. He says this, as we think about this reality of the Spirit. He says, there is no place for sentimentalism that wishes it could be in Palestine with Jesus. As if the post-Pentecost era, the outpouring of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is somehow second best. The chances are, if we may use the expression, that if you had been in the crowd that followed Jesus at the time, you would have also been in the crowd that bullied Pilate into crucifying him. Precious indeed were the few that sat at his feet and truly worshipped him. That so many have become disciples in the centuries since is a testimony to the truth of his own words to the disciples about the necessity of his departure and the blessing that would follow through the coming of the Holy Spirit. See, it has been a greater blessing. It has been an advantage of the church that Jesus go away. It's a weird quote if you were to quote that, right? Because by his going away, his spirit has come. And with the coming of the spirit, the gospel has been taken now in greater ways throughout the world. Many more souls have come to the saving knowledge of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ because of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we then come now to the portion of the text where we understand and are learning about the threefold ministry of the Holy Spirit. What would this spirit do? How would this spirit work and how would this be to their advantage jesus now gives them doctrine notice this this is the threefold ministry the holy spirit would take up after the departure of jesus 
Look at verses 8 through 11 here, speaking of the Spirit. This is what Jesus says. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. I thought about having an outline this week, but I thought, just read verse (laughs) 8. That's it. Verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now listen, as we turn our attention directly and specifically to the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we do well to note the fact that in verse 13, which you should know, the Holy Spirit is referred to as the Spirit of truth. Good, I'm so proud. (laughs) We always need to keep in mind the fact that he's called the Spirit of truth. We'll see this next week because it means his ministry primarily involves bringing people the truth. Uh, specifically bringing the truth of who Jesus Christ is to people so that they might be saved and redeemed. Specifically, he brings or spreads that truth in three areas that we see in verse 8, in the areas of sin, righteousness, and judgment. As Jesus tells us in this passage, for starters, we're told in verse 8, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin. In other words, the Holy Spirit will bring the truth to this world concerning sin conviction of sin. This this truth that he brings will begin to stir in the hearts of people. By convict, by the way, what we mean is he will bring and reveal the truth of his word about Jesus in such a way that it will necessarily become a conviction for the sin in the world. So, So how does the spirit of truth go about bringing conviction in people? What does that look like? How do we, how do we, distinguish this well friends he does it by pointing people first of all to his holy law he he points them to his law remember romans 2 all mankind has a conscience right we are all created in the image and likeness of god in that way we all have the law of god written upon our hearts that is what informs the conscience of a man and so the holy spirit convicts the world of their falling short of living in accordance with that law In order for the Holy Spirit to bring people to salvation, he must convict them of sin first. How can people ever be convicted of their sin if they don't hear that they've broken God's law? That they stand before him as guilty and polluted sinners. You know, when we read the book of Acts, specifically in chapters 2 through 4, we see evidence that the Holy Spirit had come. It is seen in the fact that the apostles who were before a timid, scared group all of a sudden become bold in their faith and bold in their proclamation of the gospel of Christ. Something changed there. What was it that changed? I would suggest to you that it was the Holy Spirit coming in power that made that change. Furthermore, when we start paying closer attention to the sermons given in the first half of the book of Acts, specifically one sermon that's preached by the apostle Peter, the sermon where he lays it on thick that they are guilty of having crucified the Lord of glory. Friends, in that sermon, it is filled with these convicting words pointing to the sinfulness of the people. What do we read about in regard to the response of those who heard that sermon that's, that, as we like to say, stepped on their toes, right? Friends, it says that they were cut to the heart and they responded with the question, what then shall we do? Church, that's what the Holy Spirit does. 
That, that's the work of the Spirit. He takes his law and he convicts sinners of their sin. Then he presents to them the balm of grace as it's delivered in the gospel of Jesus. That there's a solution, that there's a redemption to be had. There is deliverance to be had from that sin if you would but turn your eyes to Jesus in faith. It starts with the conviction of sin. Church family, the gospel message must contain the truth about our sinful condition. Must. Friends, people must know that they are sinners before they are ever able to appreciate the good news of salvation. If you or I don't realize that we need a Savior, how then will we ever appreciate the grace of God in sending a son to be a redeemer of mankind? The law and the gospel go together and work together to bring people to salvation. Now listen, when the word of God is faithful to be preached, friends, it, it won't be just a bunch of nice, uplifting messages to make people feel good about themselves. When the gospel is truly preached, it won't be just a lot of nice, uplifting messages to make people feel good about themselves. That's our newest church member this morning, everyone. <laughs> Baby girl. All right. Friends, that's not the purpose of God's word to his people. Rather, faithful preaching will show us our need for Jesus. It'll drive us to Jesus. That. That's a heavy responsibility for your pastor, by the way. I know that about my life, is that my life is never for, for me to drive any sort of attention towards myself or Pastor Justin. I've got one job. That is for you to see less of me and more of Christ clearly through the word of God. That's it. What a blessing that is. What a burden that is at times. But oh, how Christ is faithful. See, if the Holy Spirit is in the pulpit of a church, then we ought to be hearing a message that will convict us of our sin and drive us to Jesus. That's what gives us hope and confidence in, 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 in preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel and evangelism. You remember the example of the Philippian jailer, don't you, right? How, how did he know what to ask? He was convicted of his sin. In particular, he was convicted of his sin of unbelief. You recall how he asked what then shall I do to be saved? The question alone revealed the fact that he knew he was a sinner in need of salvation. And the answer Paul gives him to show him that his biggest sin was the sin of unbelief. And Paul answered his, his question with a simple command, didn't he? What did he say? What then must I do to be saved? Believe. <laughs> Believe. Stop being an unbeliever and become a believer. Jesus says that part of his convicting the world of sin has to do with their unbelief, right? He says that in verse 9 concerning sin because they do not believe in me. This is one of the chief sins that Jesus brings to our attention all throughout the word of God. One of the chief sins that the Spirit has come to proclaim and convict the world of. It is the sin of unbelief. Praise be to God that the Lord doesn't allow all of us to remain in our sin of unbelief. He convicts the whole world of sin, but, but some he also convinces to trust in him. If it were not for the fact that God is gracious and does actively seek and save those who are lost, then friends, there would be no hope for any of us here this morning. 
We would have no basis for sharing the good news of the gospel with others. But because we know that this same Holy Spirit that convicts sinners also converts sinners, we have a great hope in sharing the gospel with others in this dying world. We're going to move really quickly through the last two points because I want to get to this next section. And so I want to briefly look at verse 10 here. And concerning righteousness, he says, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. When he speaks of righteousness here, we're really not sure exactly what he exactly means. Um, uh, It could be speaking of convicting them of their righteousness, convicting them of, of, or it could be convicting them of his righteousness, or it could be both. So what I mean by that is not totally clear which would be the right way to understand this, because we know the Holy Spirit does convict the world of its righteousness, or rather its self-righteousness, right, or lack of righteousness, People think that they're righteous because they're living according to their own moral standard. People tend to think well of themselves, that they're good people. But anytime somebody thinks that way about themselves, they are using themselves as their own perfect standard, which is a flawed standard. (laughs) That's the whole point. You can't use yourself in that standard because you have fallen short of the glory of God. The only way to get a true measurement of where we are is to have an objective standard against which we compare ourselves. The Holy Spirit does just that. By the way, that's such an encouragement for us as Christians. If you're one of those Christians that just likes to look to others to compare how good you are on your spiritual walk, friends, let me encourage you with something. That's not the standard you're measured by. The standard is Christ. How do you look compared to Jesus? I don't look good. Can I just tell you that? I don't look good at all. I look terrible compared to Christ, which is why I'm I'm so glad that that same Jesus that I'm looking to as the standard came down and saved me from my sin, that he covered me in his blood so that when, when the God of the heavens looks at me in judgment, he sees the perfect standard of his son and he doesn't see my own flawed standard. Friends, that's a great grace. The Holy Spirit does that work of seeing and reminding us that we're a flawed standard. He directs our attention to the perfect standard, the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> you see, it will not do to measure yourselves up against anyone else. You can always, always find someone to measure yourself against that will make you look very good. It doesn't take long and it's not very hard. But if we're going to measure ourselves rightly... Again, it must be against the perfect one, Jesus Christ. He is the standard of righteousness. He says of righteousness in verse 10, because I go to the Father and you do not see me. Jesus is going to the Father was actually proof of his righteousness. The fact that Jesus is no longer here on earth is proof that he is in fact the righteous one. The fact that he was raised from the dead proved that the Father had accepted the perfectly righteous work of redemption. His exaltation to the right hand of the Father is that reward that comes along with him perfectly accomplishing the work of the Father had given him to do. So in all these ways, the Spirit is convicting the world of righteousness. Then look at verse 11. This is intriguing. We'll close up with this in 11. He says, And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world, get this, has been judged. I love that. See, the Holy Spirit convicts men of the coming judgment. And and using this particular phrase, Jesus is telling us that Satan was already judged. 
He's already judged at the cross. So the people here, or the point here, is that because Satan has been judged, we can be sure and know that others will be judged too. People may think that because the Lord allows people in this life to live however they desire and has yet to come down in judgment, meaning that God will never, ever judge. I've always lived that way. And you know what? He hasn't judged me yet. The world has lived this way. It's been going on for generations and he hasn't judged the world yet. So there's no real danger of this judgment. Friends, we do well to remember what Peter noted about the same mentality of those people back in the days of Noah. Remember when all of them were gathering around making fun of Noah for building the ark and he preached to them for many years. All they responded to uh, with was mockery and disdain. Each year that went by, they understood that year as being further proof that judgment would never come. But what happened? They were gravely wrong. Judgment did come. And friends, just as sure as it came back then, it will come again. Even if a long time should pass before it arrives, we must realize that it will most certainly come. And we all need to be ready to face it. Indeed, the coming of the Holy Spirit has been a great advantage of the church for the carrying out of the gospel, the carrying out of the Great Commission. In fact, as it concerns the Holy Spirit's blessing upon his use of the preaching ministry within the church, John Calvin, the great reformer, said this. He said, For how comes it that the voice proceeding from the mouth of a man penetrates into the hearts, takes root there, at length yields fruit, changing hearts of stone into hearts of fresh and renew, or flesh and renewing men, but because the Spirit of Christ quickens it. Friends, that, that is why when we see conversions happening today, it is evidence and proof that the Holy Spirit is among us. When we see lives change, when we see each other walking through difficult times and trials and applying doctrine and theology and knowing God is going to use this for my good and his glory, we know that the Holy Spirit is active among us. That he still has work to do in us and through us and drawing others to himself. So before we end, please consider this question. Have you been convicted by the Holy Spirit this morning? Have you responded to his gracious invitation to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you might be forgiven of your sins? That you might receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ credited to your account? that you might be delivered from the judgment to come. Friends, remember what the scripture says. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Folks, we don't know what a day might bring. My encouragement, as it always is for you, is to make today the day of salvation. Let's close in prayer together. Father, we consider it a humbling joy and honor to be able to read and study and proclaim the word of God. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would, much like the disciples, because of the work of the Spirit, be able to apply theology to our circumstances and lives. And Lord, we know we need help in that. And that's, Lord, just why it's so important to have the local church. 
Lord, uh, knowing the need we have for applying doctrine and theology to our individual circumstances, Lord, it's, it's like what Pastor Brian said last week, why Sunday school is so important. We need each other to help us, help each other point towards Christ. We need, Lord, the Spirit to work within the unity and bond of the church to bring about sanctification. Father, we also consider how great it is that you have given us your spirit. Father, protect us from thinking that we would have been far better off Christians if we had only seen Jesus, if we only lived in that time. Father, uh, the spirit is the one who has revealed to us Christ. So if we feel like we've been, we would have been better if we've seen Jesus, maybe we've never really seen Jesus through the converting work of the spirit. Lord, help us understand what his ministry is. That he comes convicting the world of sin, the world of righteousness, and the world of judgment to come. Lord, help us celebrate that we get to take part of that wonderful work. Lord, as servants, as bond servants unto Christ, we get the pleasure of watching your spirit work. We see it in lives who've been changed by the gospel. We see it in conversions. We see it and men and women in this church having victory despite their circumstances because of their trust and doctrine and the promises of God. Oh, how merciful you are to us, Father. We pray your blessings upon us as a church now as we sing in response to what you've done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.